Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Ground Buster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Corey Witherall, thank you for coming back to ATV Talk. How are you, brother? I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm doing great. You know, last time we talked, we covered so much of your career and we just skimmed across the surface. And, you know, I don't think we did your ATV portion of your career justice. So what I'd really like to know is a little bit more about, you know, you seem to have a love for ATVs like I do. And I want to know a little bit more about the time you got to spend on the back of a, of a quad. And um, in your words, tell us what, it, what it's all about. I know you met Brian Fry that way and he helped you at Ascot park so that you could race. Um, and that formed a friendship with, with your family and his. And um, I just want you to give us, uh, give us the rundown. Well, yes. I mean, it, it's pretty much something that, that was introduced to me as a young child. I mean, like you said something before, I said that how my first time on ATV was just on a family vacation up in, in Lake Arrowhead. And at that time, I mean, I was really into dirt bikes. So I was looking at, you know, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, just looking through the magazines, like motocross magazines, three-wheelers and ATVs. So at that time, I mean, three-wheelers were were the end thing, the big thing. And that's, you know, what I looked at in life and I always had the interest, but then the ATVs, you know, started coming out. And, you know, when Suzuki came out with the, with the quad race in 85, I was just kind of like, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. Not, not really the three-wheeler thing anymore. And just, you know, looking at the magazines and, and was it back then uh, cycle news, you know, the little local newspaper or motorcycle newspaper, I think it was. I would always read them and look at the articles and, and see like all the ATV stuff. And, you know, for me as a child at that time, I used to you know, look at the magazines and always see Denton in there and, and Brian Fry in there doing the Suzuki quad cross, you know, when I was like 13, 14 years old. And I've always wanted to do it and everything. So before I met Brian, I actually knew who he was and everything. And as me racing at Ascot, I would always see him down there with them and everything. And, and he's the one that kind of approached me because I had issues with my, with my bike that night and everything. And that's how we formed a friendship and a, and a relationship over the years. But it just, it's always been an interest for me to get in with ATV racing and, and just, you know, do the stadium racing, I guess, was really what I wanted to do. Um, 
because even before I got involved, like I said, when I was young, I used to go to all the supercross races and used to go to the Mickey Thompson races. And so that, so again, with the Suzuki Quadcross, I used to watch that there at the supercross races at the Coliseum. And for me, I was there, like, that'd be cool one day to do it. That'd be awesome. So it just was, you know, that interest as a young child. And then when I got a little bit older and everything and got a quad racer at 250, it just went from there and everything. You know, it was kind of, I was pretty stoked because I was just like, man, this thing's like badass, this quad and everything. And <laughs> it was a lot different from my Suzuki 185 I had. So it was just a whole different animal, a whole different machine. And, you know, looking at Brian Fry in the, in the magazines and newspapers and, and Denton, you know, it was just kind of like, that's what I wanted to do. And then when I met Brian, I mean, that was, that just changed everything, you know, he, he introduced me to everybody in the, in the industry and introduced me to a lot of the top writers. And, you know, I became friends with like Andrew Buck and, you know, Denton and Alan Knowles and just everyone in that whole scene. Because I was, it was almost like I was kind of like a little brother. Like he was like dragging me along with him. <laughs> you know, we were, we were kind of like together in a sense. And he was just like the older brother because they were all in their you know, uh, early mid twenties. And I was just fourteen, just turned fifteen. So it was you know, kind of like how that whole thing started for me, and just you know, evolved from there. Did you do much amateur racing? You know what they so I think it was uh CMC that ran the that ran the series back then or the local races. They had like four groups. They had like beginner, junior, intermediate, and pro. And I just went ahead straight into the junior class that first year and everything. So I did that that first year. Then the next year I went intermediate or amateur, whatever, depending on what what sanctioning body it was. But also, I started eighty in eighty eight. I started uh, did a few of the Mickey Thompson races at that time. Maybe like the Rose Bowl and the Coliseum in Anaheim, I think, in eighty eight. Those are the best places to go. Yeah, the Coliseum. I mean, that that place. Even to this day, I mean, that's like the best track at all. I mean, it wasn't really too technical. It just awesome to go up the peristyle and jump right back down. <laughs> you know, it's just like a complete free, free fall from the very top down to the bottom. And you just launch and everything. <laughs> I never, I never got to go um, and ride the courses. Um, I only got to be a spectator. And I loved, I loved that. It was just so unbelievable. It, you know, I'm a young, I'm in my twenties working on these guys, bikes that are still superstars to me, you know, Charlie Shepard and Mark Earhart and, and just, you know, you, I can go on and on and on. And you're, my eyes would still get big when I walk into that stadium, you know, the Rose bowl or, or the Coliseum and just, wow, just an utter, wow. Couldn't believe I was there. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty like I said, when when I'm, for me watching it as a young kid, 
before I got into racing, going to Supercrosses and Mickey Thompson races. And then my first time there was just like I said, I walked in like, this is awesome. Like this, this is totally cool. You know, I think the only other track I got that same feeling for me as a racer was my first day walking into down through Gasoline Alley at Indianapolis on the front straightaway, looking down the straight one way, looking down the other way, going, holy shit. <laughs> you know, I'm actually yeah. doing this. So for my first time going to the Coliseum for the Mickey Thompson race to actually do the race, so standing on top of the peristyle, looking at over stands of a hundred thousand know, out there and going, wow, I'm actually doing this. So I think those are really the only two times I had that same feeling of walking to a, to a track. Now I've raced a lot of great tracks all across the country, but those are the two that actually gave me that kind of like, I guess a pinch me moment kind of thing. Did you, did you have many nerves when you were going to go into the first portions of riding in the Mickey's? Do you have any nerves? Like, yeah. Were you really nervous? No. No, I mean, a little bit like we talked, we discussed before in the past and everything with racing, you know, you learn how to put those aside and everything, you know, you learn how to deal what's, what's in going forward. And I, I myself, I know myself well enough to where I could control a lot of the, the nerves, I guess, and the butterflies and everything to where it didn't really get in my way to distract what I need to do and everything. No. I know a lot of people get nervous or get like start pacing back and forth and get anxious, but I've always been able to keep like really cool. Even even like even like my rookie year at Indianapolis, you know, I qualified on bump day. So that's like they only take 33 cars and there was like I don't know, like 45 guys entered for the race. So they're only taking the 33 fastest. And I went in the race, bumping out and bumping out three guys or, whatever, or one guy to get into the race. But I was far enough up, up above the ladder to where I wasn't sitting on the, what they call the bubble, the 33rd spot and everything. So we were just all fighting for And the last day on bump day, you're fighting for that last day or that last spot or whatever you start you just keep on knocking out the slower car <laughs> is what right so you got still 10 more guys waiting there to qualify and they keep on going running out bumping out that slower guy so i bumped my way in but i got far enough ahead to where i, I you know we had like i think uh an hour left which is what they call happy hour track condition changes on the speedway it gets faster at that time. So that's when they, that's when bump day really kicks in. And that's kind of like for a driver, that's like the most intense moment in any guy trying to qualify for Indy is on bump day that final hour. Because the way the sun's set in the west and the big bleachers down the front straightaway, it just casts a big shadow over the track. So when that shadow comes over the track, the track temperature cools down and the air temperature cools down. So that's when the, the engine comes alive and you got more grip and doing faster speeds. And that's when everybody starts going faster. <laughs> but when, when, when I, when I, so when I guess, I guess we kind of take a long story here, but that day is the most nerve wracking, you know, stressful day to anybody. But I just sat there and got in my car and it just so happened right when ESPN went live at the speedway for that final hour, which like I said, they call happy hour. And it just, uh, they opened the broadcast with, with the camera right in my face. It's like, this is the first card going out in half the hour. And I went out there and 
who had bumped out. Japanese driver Shigeki Hattori at that time. And I was above, I was a junior, so I kind of said to myself, I guess this part kept me cool. I was like, I was a junior, so I can get bumped out of this race. And I'm faster than him. I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just kept watching the, they just kept watching the times and everything. And, you know, you know, I kept it cool and everything. And I was confident enough, but that would probably be the most stressful time anyone's racing is qualifying for the 500. How many guys can they run in an hour? A complete run for qualifying, you have your outlap, and then it depends on weather conditions. They might give you one or two laps to warm up. If it's really, if it's cold, they'll give you extra laps just to get more heat in the tires. But you're pretty much full throttle the minute you leave the gate all the way around. Then you come by, then the next time by, you'll get like the checker flag. So you have kind of like almost two laps to get up to speed. Then you have to do four laps, and each lap is about. It, I mean, I don't know what they're exactly what they're doing now, but at that time, they're about like 38, 39 second lap times. You know, it's a two and a half mile oval, and you're doing that in 38 seconds. I think today's mm-hmm. is about like 37 seconds or something like that. But you have to do four laps. So, man. So, so in time wise, you can run a car, you know, four minutes. But when you get to like the mad rush at the end, there sometimes if you're not up to speed on your first lap or second lap, when they know it's not going to be fast enough to bump somebody out, the team will either wave the wave a yellow flag and pull their guy off the track, or if it's coming like a, to the very end when they want to get somebody else to try to qualify, the officials might throw a black flag, kind of like you're not going to get in at those speeds. Let's give somebody else a try. So. Wow. Do they, well, we're getting off track. I want to talk about quads. I mean, that's interesting, but. um, So. You got to race most all of your racing on the West coast, right? Yeah. Majority of my racing was all through California and and Arizona. And um, just going back and forth in Northern Northern California and Southern California. We're going up to like Marysville and you know, like Brentwood and Porterville and kind of everything else in between there in the, in the Central Valley. But I did do, I did, I did go back to Loretta. I went to, uh, did a few nationals. I went to, I think, Tennessee and um, I went to Florida to, uh, who was it, Gainesville or something. Went back there and I uh, went to Texas for for no both motocross and, and TT at was in Boys. What class did you ride back there? Uh, was it Pro Am or Amateur? Where was it below Pro? Pro Am. Yeah, so that was in uh, I think went to Texas, and then eighty nine I went to those other ones. I think 89, yeah, that's when I went to Loretta. Florida, that was in 90. Florida, I was going to do all Mickey's and, and run all the nationals, but the first national, I broke my, broke my forearm. It was kind of, it was a TT race. We're going into the first turn. The guys are running like around fourth or fourth or fifth or something like that, or 
the guy behind me, there's so much dust because it was like the last race of the day or something, about five o'clock in the afternoon, and we're going into the, the sun as it's setting into the west. So it was just dust all over the place. And you could barely see anybody in front of you. And I guess the guy behind me didn't see us all breaking or didn't break where we were because he was just using the side records because of dust and just climb up the rear tire of me and we all went cartwheeling down the front straightaway. Yeah. So I had a bike land on my forearm and broke the two bones and had surgery that night in uh, in Tallahassee. So that wasn't a, that wasn't a great way to start the year, was it? No, that actually that accident ended my my ATV career. <laughs> so I mean, because you, when you have metal in your arm and everything, I had two plates and fourteen screws and. Doctors are saying, you know, if you crash again and break break it in that same point or the same area, it will just shatter your your the bones in that whole area. And when that happens, they'll be in smaller pieces and they may not be able to put it back together. So when you're a young 17, 18 year old, you don't want to hear that and everything. You know, is right. like, lose my arm possibly? It's like, no, nah, I'm not gonna do that. That was the first race, actually, that my parents did not go to. And my mom and dad went to see uh, my dad's parents in Arizona, and that's why they didn't go. And I was like, ah, don't worry, I'm good, you know. You know, I got a, you know, everybody there, you know, like Roger Helsley was there. There's a lot of West Coast guys were there, and, and, um, you know, it was almost like being at a home race and everything. So I was like, I got it, I'm cool. But that happened and my mom spent all night flying flying from Arizona to get to me and everything. And after that she said like like we're never gonna miss a race. <laughs> and it's true. That's, it's, I mean that's great. That's great that they were so into it and wanted to support you. Yeah. You know, it's it's too bad because I really felt that, you know, the year before, uh, in running the Mickey's in 89, you know, the year before that, you know, I got the fastest qualifier at, at the LA Coliseum. I beat John Hemme, I think it was like by a hundredth of a second to get that. So I knew there, there I mean, I mean, everyone that, that worked around me knew that I had that potential and I could go from there. It just, you know, at that time I was in high school and still dealing with that. But in 90, that was the year I graduated from high school. So it's kind of like, all right, now I'm going to go full, full bar and everything. 90, get, get the feel for everything. They come 91, you don't have any distractions on the way. That's when I'm going to really, really, you know, move, really, you know, focus on the whole professional level. But the accident, you know, kind of put that away. But I mean, it opened doors for me in a different avenue, which, you know, had I not crashed and broken my arm, who knows? I may have never been down that same road to go on my way to do the Indy 500 and all the other types of forms of racing I've done. You know, I could, yeah, that's that, that's <laughs> true. Racing was until I was 25, until you know, the late 90s or something, or mid 90s. Were any of the guys that you, that you knew and met through IndyCar? Did any of them know anything about quads or? ATVs. Uh, you know, a few, a few guys. Yeah, as far as like the whole, you know, nationals and stuff like that, and you know, they know about Mickey Thompson's. You know, mainly the guys on the West Coast did because you know Mickey's was mainly on the West Coast. 
But, you know, everybody, I mean, when you think of Mickey Thompson, though, you think of the stadium trucks and, and you know, the, the factory, whatever teams they play on forward. And you know, everybody knew who Roger Mears and Ivan Stewart and, and Walker Evans. So, so when it came to um, talking quads, you know, the, the, the guys who were motocross guys or that were into motocross knew, knew about the stuff, about the ATV racing and, and everything. So, wow, that's it's crazy. But stadium racing was cool. I mean, it was it was a whole it's a whole different animal from from outdoor racing. I mean, I was I was just actually talking to um, someone last night and everything about stadium racing, how it's just different from you know outdoors and and even back then, you know, tracks are different today versus back then. I mean, today you have you have nice polished tracks. Today, where back then you ran a race after like. 10 motocross heat races <laughs> where it's all rutted out. Yeah, they didn't, they, they didn't groom. And, and I, I tell the kids that I talk to that are racing motocross, I says, you guys have no idea. He says, yeah. we didn't get groom tracks. Yeah. You know, they didn't go out and till it before practice and, and it was all awesome and smooth. And it, it, no, it was what it was. And you just wrote it. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like Blythe, you know, the, the big Blythe race was at the Cal Fleming Memorial race. That track was awesome. Just big rolling hills through the desert and natural terrain, but they had like a lot of big jumps, big doubles, big tabletops, but they also ran quads with motorcycles. <laughs> like we were saying, you know, you got the doubles, which I think it are, they were like, what, 85 feet apart. I mean, they're huge. It's already like, you know, you got big balls or little balls and whether you're going to do it or not. And my first time there was actually with Brian Fry and everything. And that was in 87. And he kind of told me, he's like, you know, if you're going to win, you got to do the doubles. <laughs> you know, that, that was kind of like the model of going to win, you got to do the doubles. And I think I was the only one in the amateur class that actually was doing the doubles there. Because all the pros were and everything, but you know, you have to be like fucking wide open and hit it. But the problem was you're going down. And I, I vaguely remember you have to go down, down this like into this valley or a little small canyon and you come up top of the hill. The way right when you cross it, it was like a left turn. And then you just got to pin it from there and hit that double like wide open, you know, just the tallest gear you have and not lift because they the back out of the throttle already because you you know you're either gonna case it or or plan it right in the second one. Mm. But you have to do it and everything and carry enough momentum up that hill and churn and rotate quick enough to get back to get back on the full throttle because if you don't then you're not gonna have enough runway speed to get the speed that you need to clear it. And like we were saying earlier, you didn't have you know you didn't have the green track to do it or a green line. You just did that race right after, like I said, 10 motocross races where there's like five ruts going through that turn. Right. <laughs> and bumps going all the way up, up, uh, up the valley, up the hill and everything to, to make that left turn. I mean, you watch, you watch like the old videos on YouTube uh, during the Golden State Nationals at Carlsbad. You know, they, if you notice, there's like one video I saw on there. I think like Jimmy White was in there and, and all of them and everything. It was all, I think it was like in 86, I think that one that I saw in the video. 
but that race was like the last race of the day. You can tell just by the glare of the sunlight and everything, you know, the shadows that they casted over Carlsbad. And that was after all the motocross races, after the 250 Pro, because actually, yeah, because they showed like Jim Holly on that and everything. And you just see all the ruts as they going up the hill and coming down the hill. And was it Devil's Drop or something they called it? And <laughs> it was just. Yeah, I remember that. Track is all beat up. And this is just like, you know. <laughs> And you're going wide open over that. You know, I raced at Carlsbad a lot. And motorcycles and three-wheelers and four-wheelers. I never, ever remember seeing a tractor. When they when they ran TT, they had a like a, um, a mattress spring, the springs inside the mattress that they would drag the TT course with. Oh yeah. And, and they put a little water on it. So it would harden up, you know, so that we could blue groove it. And it, it lasted and held up really well, but in, in any of the off-road stuff or the motocross stuff that we raced there, there were no, nothing. They, they didn't have any equipment to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen that. The only thing I've seen was like a water truck. And that water truck only sprayed certain areas. Yeah, because they had a sprinkler system and they wouldn't turn it on during the day. Yeah. And they only, you got it in the morning. When you got there in the morning, there were sections of that track that were soup. Yeah. And that's all the flat part in the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Because all the water ran from the top and came back down. <laughs> exactly. And you just had to deal with it. I mean, some of the mud holes were still there at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... I, I think that um, if you look at the talent that these people have today, they are very talented and they're riding machines that are incredibly well suspended. Uh, the motor packages or the motors they get to run are, are, are way better than anything that we, that we got to use back in the eighties and nineties. And I would, I would love to, bring the fast guys of today back to that era and let them ride those machines and say, now this is, this is where the men and boys get separated. <laughs> Which are you? It was to do that Carlsbad recently. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Did you get to spend much time at Carlsbad? Yeah. I raced every time we were able to, uh, whenever they had a CMC race, I was down there. That was, that was like my favorite track. You know, it's funny because even with all my other type of racing, you know, there's tracks I I love to hate, but they actually the tracks that are my favorite, you know, and I think that's just the more difficult, challenging ones. So, right. so like Carlsbad, I mean, you have to be in shape to, to really, you know, handle that track. I mean, the, like we were talking about with the, the ruts and the bumps and everything. I mean, that track's not built for, for quads or anything like that. So that was kind of like my favorite track, you know, to, to race at and everything. Um, Sunrise out in Ottawa was one of my favorite tracks. I hated it, but I loved it. <laughs> you, you know, I never. It was like 110 degrees, but that was also another track that was just brutal. I mean, it was rough as hell because you got hard packed dirt, then you got sand that just digs out big ruts and everything, and then you got more hard pack and then the watering system was the same like Carlsbad. I mean, some areas was like a soup and other areas was just dry as the desert. 
right? So yeah. we got to run. Um, I, I never really liked Adelanto. I, I I never ever the the few times that I raced it had good luck there. It was always something. I always had something go wrong, you know, whether it be me, me crashing or, or, you know, one year battery cable came off, you know, and, and you just, I just never had a good vibe there. I just never, never really liked racing there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ate it pretty bad there for one race. And I kind of like, after that race, I was kind of like, I don't know if I really like this track anymore, but because I, I don't know if you remember, but they had this one area part section of the track in the back where they kind of made their own like canyon, their own little valley. It was like just like a big ditch, like a twenty foot ditch in there, and they just dug out with a tractor. So it's kind of like a almost like a small peristyle, you know, like a coliseum peristyle jump where you mm-hmm. kind of on top and then you're jumping down to this man made ditch and everything, but. It was just like a run it out deal once, and I keep flying in there and landed right where everybody else is landed, and it just paced it and just went over the bars and tumbled all the way down. And yeah, it kind of after that, it's kind of I don't know if I like this track anymore. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that much fun. Yeah. We were there. We were there one year, and Grunlin, Nick Grunlin was he was flying. Um, he was in the the lead group, I believe. Uh, I don't remember the whole story and he hit a, an edge and it threw him on the ground pretty hard. Um, we all, he didn't, I, he didn't finish. I, I think he took an ambulance ride that day. Um, you know, we were all pretty concerned because dude, he was on the gas and th- that edge just freaking he hit it. He hit it rear the rear tires and it just pitched him right over the bars, you know, and then I think the quad slammed him. Uh, I mean, he probably could remember it and tell it better than I can. Uh, Cause I got it secondhand, but I, I know that when he didn't come back around, that guy was a tough dude. And if he didn't get up and come back around, it had to have hurt. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that place would do it just because like I said, I mean, it's just super rough with the, the sand and the hard packed dirt that, that kind of intermixes with the natural desert terrain. Yeah, they have. They still have that race uh, now and again, but it's not the same because there's housing developments and things like that. Um, but they but they they still have it every once in a while. I think it's I think it's still a yearly event, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I drove by there um, not too long ago, like a couple months ago, just cutting through from San Bernardino to going through the across the desert and I was driving up the 395 and I was like, well that track is still there. <laughs> yeah. The track right off the side and everything off the I think it was 395 that main highway. Yeah they I well they called the one track 395. Uh there's a motocross track out there. And um that that was they had a huge tabletop and um the wind would get kicking up out there. And Dustin Nelson is one of the guys that uh, was racing at the time said that he hated it because you had to jump. You had to make sure you jumped into the wind and it would push you back on the, onto the course. Cause you were basically jumping off into the desert and it would bring you back onto the course. And, and he says, well, if the gust died when you were in the air, you were flat landing out in the desert. <laughs> yeah. 
wasn't a lot of some of the guys didn't like it at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't have. Yeah, there's a lot of good tracks. Like I said, you know, like we're talking about Blythe. Blythe was like one of my favorite tracks and everything. That was always just a good, good, fun place to go racing. You know, Blythe. And of course, you know, of course, Ascot. Go ahead. So like Ascot, I, mean, I was at Ascot like every Friday night. And that was like a you know, fun track to go race. And that was, that was motocross? Yeah, the Friday night motocross. How was the lights? The lights there were okay. I mean, you could see where you're going, but I mean, it could have been brighter. <laughs> so well, they didn't have LEDs back then. Yeah, well, because it was was so Ascot was uh, a half mile dirt track. Yes, and then they had like a, I think a quarter mile dirt track inside the half mile track. So the motocross track kind of zigzagged between the, the quarter mile track and they used the front straightaway or had like a big PT tabletop on the front straight off to the side of the front straightaway. So whenever the track went to the edge of the quarter mile dirt track, it was always bright with lights. But then when the track kind of went into the infield of the quarter mile track, there was like really no lighting. Because in the infield part, they had the bathroom. So, like after you at the gate, you went down at the end of the straightaway. You made a like a left turn. They went through these big rolling jumps that kind of was above like the quarter mile track. Then you made a right turn and went into the infield. And then right there were all the bathrooms and everything right there. And that part, that whole spot was all dark because <laughs> the lights, you know, where the dirt track were mainly focused on the on the quarter mile, not in so much in the infield. Right, they weren't gonna they weren't gonna spend any money to make the lights better because the draw wasn't big enough. Yeah, but it was yeah. For us, I mean, because for me, I did it every I did it every week, every Friday night, just because I looked at it as like another another way to go practice. It was just more practice time, and then I raced every, pretty much every Sunday somewhere somewhere in uh, California. That's that's an awesome awesome schedule. Um, yeah. I got to, my dad raced at Ascot and I got to go and watch a flat track race up there. Um, when Honda was, was supporting a team, uh, back in the eighties, right before they closed down. Yeah. It was, a, it was a really iconic thing. Cause you hear stories about it, you know, all my, as in my childhood was hearing stories about it. And then I, I late teens, I got to go and uh see it i didn't get to race there but i got to go see it and uh i thought that was pretty special pretty cool yeah well i mean like they also had um you know so like brian fry he you know he put on speedway nights there too at on the speedway track out on the just on the side of the ascot park area there was they had like you know a motorcycle speedway track so so we'd i would do those too whenever he had his little speedway series going around at the at the track there. How did you like how did you like TT? I like TT a lot. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I wish wish I could have done more of it or, you know. I the first time I did it was in Bakersfield. And again, that was like, you know, in uh 
when I first met Brian. I mean, like I said, I kind of, Brian took me under his wing kind of thing, you know. I went all over the place and Brian told me where all the, all the good tracks to go to and all the different writing styles. And, you know, because of him, he told me about Bakersfield and, and he's like, you know, we're all racing on Bakersfield. You should come up for, for that. And everything. I was like, all right, I'll do it. So you know, we went to a lot of races together. And we went to like, like El Centro. I mean, I don't know. We <laughs> went everywhere. I don't remember all the races, but I mean, that's how like, like I said, how I got to know everybody in the industry or at least all the guys from that time who were transitioning out of three wheelers into four wheelers and, and all the young guys starting out and Mickey's and stuff. And did, did you race a three wheeler at all? No, no, just smarter than most, huh? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think I was, well, I rode one and everything and it was all right. It was fun. I had a good time, but, I was boy at that time. I was already ridden no four wheelers through ATVs or whatever, and I just kind of like I like the four wheelers better. Yeah, some people do that, and then I still talk to some guys that are diehard three wheeler guys, um, and you know they're building custom frames for them now and building real aftermarket three wheelers where they're putting the dirt bike motors in them and. And I just think, man, that is a lot of horsepower for a three-wheeler. Yeah, you know, <laughs> with this little thing that that we're putting together and stuff. So I've been having a lot of conversations with guys from back then and emails exchanging and text messages. And, you know, we would get start talking about little stories and, you know, they'll tell me little, little things about three-wheelers or about a race or something like that, you know. Like Mike Coe and I yesterday were emailing back and forth and he was telling me about some story or some race with him and Denton and everything when he you know, was racing the Mickey Thompson race in Pomona. And who was else? Uh, um, uh, somebody, but Frank Peratelli called me the other day and we were talking. He was telling me, because I only knew him a little bit from, from ATVs, but he was like, yeah, no, I started off with three wheelers and He's like, no, I just recently went out riding one, like or did like a race so fairly recently. And he just like was telling me about it. He's like, yeah, I don't still know. I mean, keep the front end down and everything. He's like, have you ever ridden one? I was like, not nothing like <laughs> nothing like that, like a 250R and like that board, just like a little like 125 three wheeler. But like, I can't imagine riding. He's like, yeah, you just gonna slide those things around all the time. <laughs> he's like, but I kept on getting bite and lifting the front end up. Couldn't even <laughs> do it. And, so it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm having a lot of three-wheeler conversations lately. You know, like Dean Sando said, oh, whatever, sent me a couple pictures of everything yesterday of you know, a three-wheeler from 1978. <laughs> and from the yeah. 80s. So, it's, it's, so, so now it's actually kind of funny because now I'm kind of more interested in, in what is, I guess, just everything about that. We're trying to put together a deal with... Um some of the different three-wheeler builders to meet up in Arizona. And, and, you know, I, I don't want to critique the comparison, you know, where we're picking the best one. I want to just see the differences and ride some of them just to see what they're like. Um, because the guys that are spending time with, you know, where they throw their legs over them all the time are telling me how great they are and they'll do this and they'll do that. Well, I want to see it up close and personal for myself. And, and, you know, I don't get to ride much and, and I do have a little bit of a limit, 
a limitation, but I can't wait. I just want to go. I got to ride uh, a CRF three-wheeler for like 200 yards. And the only reason I rode it 200 yards is because my dumbass didn't put a helmet on and I had no gear. And I just, I, I clicked one gear. I clicked the into third and it just, it just spun around so nice and easy. I downshifted and, and kind of idled it back and gave it back to the guy and says, yeah, this is the dumbest thing in the world to turn me loose on that, especially with no riding gear on and, and not, you know, cause I'm a stickler for, you know, safety. You gotta be, you, you gotta be safe. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to show the, the young, the youth out there, you're riding with no helmet or doing something stupid like that. So, you know, I was kind of being a hypocrite, you know, yelling at people to put a helmet on and I, and I did it with no helmet. So, um, I can't wait to to get all geared up and go really ride one, um, and, and see what they can do through the bumps. Yeah, it, it'd be interesting, you know, to see what it's like, you know, to ride like a real nice 250R or whatever, you know, or something like the newer, whatever ones that they're building or anything, just to see what it's like. <laughs> like I said, I just had, I kind of have to say this, this interest now and everything about it. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's really cool. It, I mean, it, it they're, their guys are innovating parts and making it upside down forks, you know, like the dirt bikes have, uh, they're integrating the better suspension in the rear and, and they have so much horsepower. I mean, you, you're just, you know, they're riding a 60 horsepower freaking crotch rocket basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested in trying one out one day. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I'm I'm hopefully going to work with somebody uh, at some point during the year on theirs and um, maybe get a little more involved. I'd I'd like to. Um, so that I think that'll be pretty fun. Um, yeah. So we'll 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 be I'll keep you up to speed if if something like that comes up. We'll see if you're free and we'll we'll take you out there with us and and, and let you. Uh, but you get a taste for the three wheelers. Yeah, that'd be cool. There you go. When when did you switch from Suzuki to Honda? Uh, eighty eight. So yeah, so like eighty seven when, when I first started, I had a Suzuki, and then when the eighty eight came out, that's when I switched switched over to a Honda. Why? Why did you go from the Suzuki to the Honda? Just, you know, from talking to people and everything and, and just looking at what's, what's the better bike and better feel and everything. Um, obviously having the Suzuki and then at that time, you know, knowing the guys who were running like an 87, 250R and, you know, Brian, Brian had an 87 and you know, he's telling me a lot about that and, but with the difference between the two bikes and everything. So I made that switch and it just so happened that time uh, my local Honda dealership had a 250 yard that they just got it in that day and I pretty much left with it that night. <laughs> <laughs> Did they call you and tell you they had it or are you already, already told them you wanted one? 
I kind of already knew they had it there or whatever. I knew that they were getting one. So I was just talking to them a little bit about it. So I walk in one day and they're like, oh, hey, Corey, <laughs> look what we just got here. I'm like, oh, I'll be right back. Yeah, boom. <laughs> don't, don't sell it. Yeah. I, I remember when the 86 250R came out, the quad, and we couldn't get to the local Honda dealer fast enough before they were gone. Yeah, I think I think so. This was they're no longer there in existence. This was like their Honda Santa Monica, and and um, I think I bought their or took their only four two fifty R's that they got <laughs> when when they, they didn't get them all at the same time. It just you know because I had one bike for practicing. The first one I had, I was grinding, but I beat the shit out of that thing. So then I got like a newer one for when I ran Mickey's and then the national bike and another practice bike. So I had like four of them throughout the whole year. But I think I got probably the only four that they that, that dealership ever got or sold for that year. Just because Santa Monica is not really a spot where they sell a whole lot of dirt bikes back then. Right. No they liked you, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's got, pretty cool stuff. And then when they got the 89s and everything, then I had to do the same thing. <laughs> I told them, I came when the 89 comes out, I'd let me know. And you only got to ride the 89 for, what, a half a season? Three quarters of a season? Well, no, it was, it was 90 my accident. So the, you know, the 89s came out around that whole that whole year and with the 89s and everything. And then the 90 came around. I had a... I had an 89, but at the same time, it being in 90, JP gave me a chassis and everything, which I never put that together. <laughs> because, or I got it like maybe a month before I went to do the nationals. And then that's when I broke my arm. So I never really had a chance to build that, that JP bike. Really. And you sold it all, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and after that, I wish I would have kept it. <laughs> right. Wouldn't. If you only would have known, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people that knew that I had it or know that story, or they're like, don't you wish you would have kept it? Now? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Not so much just that. I wish you would have kept all the parts. Go. So overall, in general, throughout those 89, 88, and, or 80, 89, 90 year, I had uh, like four 88s and six 89s. And, you know, like we say, that I would have kept that JT bike, but... I wish I would have kept all the stock OEM parts that I took off those bikes and threw away. <laughs> right? Like the stock exhaust, the heel guards. I mean, the heel guards now, they're like gold. <laughs> if you could find yeah, them. No, nobody ever kept them. They just tossed them in the trash. The front bumpers, the grab bars, everything. Right? You can't buy that stuff anymore. So I'm sort of thinking that, man, I, just, I remember just like, Take wrenching, take it, throwing it, you know, here you go. I don't need that. I don't need that. We had no vision that in 30 years people would be, you know, beg borrowing borrowing and stealing for those things, you know, to put OEM pieces back on some of these machines. Yeah. Yeah. I got I got quite a few of them right now myself, 88s and 89s and everything. And I kind of do that whole saying, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul. So I might find like an 88 and then strip it and take the parts that I want and then sell the rest of it. 
just so I can make right. the other one over here, you know, all stock 88 or something, or, or, you know, the interchangeable 88 parts for an 89 I'll put on there on my 89. Do you go riding or do you just have them to be a collector? Oh, collector is the right word, but I mean, I just like it. And I want, I want to go riding and everything. I went, I went out one time and everything, you know, I only, I don't know, kind of like for the last two years, two and a half years, collecting them, whatever, but buying them. Uh, but um, my intention is to go out riding and everything. But I found a couple really nice ones, and a lot of people said, they're telling me, you can't ride that, but nothing's too nice. So like, all right. That's kind of like how it all started, where I got like a, where I got quite a few of them now. It's just because the ones I found were actually really nice. So it's kind of like, well, I. You know, I, just find, I want to find a one to ride and everything. So I have that now. And, and um, like I said, I have a son. He's 13 years old. And a year ago, a year ago, I bought like a little Polaris 90. So I'm going to put him on that and ride with him. But the racer in me and everything, I, you know, buying a used one and everything is like, I got to make it perfect for him, you know? So. I started taking apart so I could replace all the bushings and bearings in it. And I started looking at it like a part, like, well, this one doesn't look really good. So I was kind of like, all right, I'm gonna take it out and get it replated or repowder coat the A-arms and the swing arms and then putting new brakes in it and everything. I'm like, well, this thing looks like you know, the aluminum's all like oxidized and the, the hubs are all like rusted. So then I gotta get these things all vapor blasted and <laughs> So now it looks like a brand new bike, but I now I, I think I just got the springs back from the painting and everything. So I just got to put the shocks on them and then we'll be back together. <laughs> sometimes but, doing, sometimes restoring them is funner than riding them. Yeah, that's that's what it, that was like a fun thing to do. And I was looking at the engine, I was like, I don't know if I really want to take that thing out because <laughs> the engines, you know, it's you know. The guy I got it from, he I don't think he he, he might have just like hosed it off real quick, but you know when you know when you when you ride ride them in, in mud and everything and it gets baked on the baked mm -hmm. on there on the engine and everything and you can't get the dirt off. So that's why right. it, it has like the caked on dirt on there. So it's kind of like like and I want to take it and get it like vapor blasted and, and make it all look good, but there's like, nah, that's gonna take a whole nother deal. I'm, I want my son to ride it. It's just a little Claris 90. It's not it's not 250R. With a 250R, it'd take it all apart. <laughs> right, right. I, I get it. Let me ask you this question. You got the thrill of riding ATVs and you got to motocross them and TT you're a, a racer and you've raced at the highest levels that, that anybody could. Is there any comparison from racing the ATV to getting inside of a car and racing? Any, um, I think it's more or less the, if anything, what, what works with the both is it's, like you mentioned earlier, like butterflies and your nerves and everything, you know, it's just, you have that same mental aspect or mental approach to a race is still the same and how you would go about, I don't know, like if you're doing a national big event like that or something and you're doing any car race, you know, 
both of those can be nerve wracking. And it's just being over to learn how to control and, and mentally prepare yourself for that. So you're not distracted by nerves or other issues around you to where you just focus on the task at hand. As far as the driving aspect, you know, the physical fitness is the same. You know, you always get the other athletes and other sports are saying race car drivers are not athletes. Well, it's like, it's like how I like to see you jump in a race car and race it for three hours pulling with like four G's around a turn, which is like four times your body weight. So, and, and staying mentally focused, you know, for three hours long in a car that's going over 220 miles an hour. You know, to sustain that amount of mental focus and physical fitness is, you know, a challenge in itself. I mean, you know, like like football or basketball, you know, they're running back and forth and they're, you know, doing their deals and stuff, but they have a lot of breaks in between. You don't have a break in between driving a race car or doing like a motocross race and everything until after your race is done. You're constantly full throttle the whole time. So, so, it, so, it's, so it's equally, you know, phys- I mean, so that misconception is, is them saying that race car drivers are, are not athletes, you know, they're, they're kind of wrong. They are because everyone that I know, even I myself, we do like triathlons, you know, on the side deal, you know, any car drivers do triathlons or like, um, Tony Kanaan does Ironmans, you know, not just the regular basic triathlon, but he does like the full 72 mile track or whatever, uh, Ironmans, like, like in Hawaii and everything where they swim yeah. two and a half miles and run a marathon and bike like 56 miles. <laughs> I do the smaller triathlons. I do the ones that only take like an hour, an hour and a half, you know. Yeah, it's okay. I can't run that that far. Um, That's the whole whole thing they do, though. I I guess as far as comparison on the physical fitness, the the mental training is, you know, the mental training is still the same. You know, the physical training is still the same, but you train differently for versus you know with race car driving or probably motocross right riding too you're not building strength like how they are like a football player you know they gotta be strong i mean they're going up against like 300 pound guys whereas indie car or road racing or car racing or probably motocross you're mainly building endurance you know stamina and everything not so much strength you know like like to lift heavy stuff but you want to be able to sustain that physical fitness for a long period of time. But like a supercross race, what's that, 20 minutes? So you need to be all be mentally, physically focused, physically strong. I mean, to run a 20-minute race in a race car, you need to be able to be strong enough to run that on the physical side. But then there's the mental side, and that's the same, same aspect, you know, the mental training part of it. So the difference between riding without a cage and a cage is what I was, was what I was grasping at because uh, Doug Eichner was a, uh, a writer that I spent a, a large portion of my career with. And when he transitioned to UTVs, um, he finally stopped racing them because he just found no fulfillment in it. 
he liked being on the back uh, of the motorcycle or the ATV. Um, it was, it was more aggressive and he could do more with it. He could ride the machines harder and he just never could. He could just never drive the, the car like he could ride the quad. Yeah, I can probably see that because it's you know, riding a quad or a motorcycle, there's a lot of body language in it. You know, you're you're throwing that thing around. It's not just throwing you around, but you're also kind of controlling it by sliding it, throwing it here, throwing it, you know, picking up the front end, going over through whoops and stuff, kind of controlling it in the air off big jumps. So you kind of have more control of your bike, whereas a car. You're kind of like a passenger in a sense, but mm -hmm. you have to learn how to to drive it. I mean, so I never driven a side by side, but to me, I I, I would adapt. You know, <laughs> you know, wouldn't have a problem adapting to it. But you know, it'd be probably similar to just driving driving my my stadium sixteen hundred car and everything. So it's on dirt. <laughs> So like so I so the I've been going to one thing that like with the with so like on with dirt you know with the with a quad or even like a motorcycle you can like roll into a turn and everything and then when you want to like really take off and go you know you you can clutch it you know slip the clutch and and just rub it and take off and I can see where Doug may have had a little bit of that issue early because you can't really do that in a car you can't like you know, go go the turn and you're on the lower RPMs you can't really clutch it and everything. And I remember like the first few times of me hopping into a road car, you know, it's all about momentum. It's all about, you know, carrying your speed, breaking into a corner and carrying the momentum and the speed around the turn, but on its fine edge. And then exiting the turn really nicely and continuing on the straightaway. And I remember my first few times when I was driving this thing, I, I always wanted to like slip the clutch and everything. Just because, like, hey, come on, let's go, let's go. It's like, oh, no, you got to be easy on the throttle and roll on the throttle, roll through the gear. Or, you know, I might have been not really so much in the wrong gear, but I might have slowed down a little more than I wanted to. But kind of like, you know, right. I just kind of want to just tap the clutch and the, 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 just get on the pipe, you know, like a two-stroke and everything. But that it doesn't was, work. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you do that in any car, I think it'll spin out on you. <laughs> and you're, then you're, like, slipping in the wall. But, you know, I know we're go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, so in a sense, you know, you kind of you know what you so when you're driving, you kind of know what you want. You just want to throw it in the car this way and everything, but you can't do that because one physically you can't do it because you're stopped in the seat and it's not a motorcycle. But in your brain, you know, that's you kind of sit there like that's what you wish you can do is like, you know, turn, turn, why is it not turning? You know, you just want to like take it outside of it's like like a quad. But in a car. Right. Cars, things just pushing like a pig. You're like, come on, bike, churn, churn. It's like, I know what to do, but I can't. It's a different animal. Right. So you were talking about your mental focus. And when you're going down the straightaway at Indy, are you able to take a breath and relax at all? So I, I've done a lot of training and everything through the help of like who people who I worked with when I got into road racing like Bob Earl he's you know one of the former Nissan GTP drivers back in the late 80s early 90s 
and and uh, and a lot of guys who worked with Nissan, you know, they were actually based out of Vista, California, or Oceanside area, and so I got to know a lot of those guys and people that worked within that work work within that team. So I got connected with them in mid nineties, and. One of the guys, his name was Joe Tobin, he told me about this outfit in, in Florida. And at the time they were in Daytona Beach and they would do like driver analysis, you know, physical and, and mental analysis on, on you. And they have a database of a bunch of people who went through the program, like other drivers who are in your class of whatever you're racing. So when I went through it, I mean, I mean, every, pretty much every IndyCar driver has gone to the program. So they have a huge database. And so what they do is they don't tell you who the people are, but they just have the average and everything. And they just compare you to people who you're competing with, like on physical strength, mental strength, so that you have an idea of where your competitors are. And then they help you um, build a program, uh, like a fitness program, a diet program. and mental training programs, you know, you know, how to mentally prepare yourself for, for competition, how to mentally, mentally um, control your aggressions and everything. And it's actually really interesting because they have these computers, you know, it's, it's all about like visual. It's all about like timing, reaction and all that stuff. So they have this equipment to where you can learn how to, see your reaction time, see how long it takes for you to identify, like a, they have a spot on the computer, like just spots like popping up and you have to tap it. So what they're testing there is seeing how long it takes for you to scan, to find it, two, to react, to push it, and three, to process the whole thing. And it's all timing there. And so they can evaluate all the numbers later and then compare it to the other guys who are in their database then they kind of show you where that is and their skills that they have to where they, they train you for that to better improve your scanning capabilities and your your processing and your reactions and everything because it's you know because that's what you're doing the whole time i don't you know whether you're racing an atv or racing a car you're constantly looking around you know you're always looking for your breaking points you're always looking for something on the track or trying to feel something on the track that's that's different or you didn't notice before because you have to i mean when you go out and practice you go out run maybe three four laps come back in the pits radio to the guys what's wrong with the car and you have to identify and tell them what's going on and then they'll make the change and they'll send you back out run three laps and come back in you know you don't go out there and just run however many laps you want and come in you know you, you know you go in and out as fast as you can you got to be able to pick everything up on one lap or two laps and feel for the car. On the quad, it's something or a dirt bike. I mean, if you can do that, like, you you know, go out and use your practice sessions and go out and run like two laps if you're trying to dial in your bike and be able to figure out all these things (laughs) and what to pay pay attention to. I mean, I understand motocross, you got the track changes every lap, but that's all comes to scanning and everything and reacting and be able to pick that up and something, you know, that changes a lot. So like, 
that is a incredible way of talking about it. It sounds to me like they're tuning you and your crew is tuning the car. Yeah. So so in a sense, when you when they when they work with you with the, the mental training, the mental processing and everything, you're far more relaxed. I mean, you know what I mean, you know, you know what to look for and how to prepare yourself. It's not as like nerve-wracking, you know, when you show up at a track and everything that would distract you from what you have to do. So like when you asked about well, you know, are you relaxed or have time to breathe? You know, the mind, mind over matter in a sense, you know, your your body will keep going. You know, like they say, you know, when you work out and everything's like your mind will give up before your body gives up. So what they try to do is is equal that out to where you're where you're physically and mentally strong and that's where you're like fully focused because it's very easy to when you're fatigued, it's very easy to lose that concentration. And then once you start losing concentration, that's when you start making mistakes. So in a sense for a motocross rider, that's probably the best tool you could have right there is, is to become mentally strong and everything. You know, yeah, we all have good days and bad days and you can be on a track struggling because you didn't get a good night's sleep because you just flew in from a town where from your hometown and your plane got canceled, delayed, got in at 12 o'clock midnight and you have to be on a truck like eight in the morning. Then you're right. just physically tired and everything. But if you are totally mentally prepared, you could you know, overcome that and everything. Yeah. So, so like me, I mean, this is a, a quick story on at, at Indianapolis. You know, like I said earlier, my first time walking out the gasoline alley from the garage onto the main street, you have to do rookie orientation when you're first time going there. I think I mentioned in the in the, the last time about rookie orientation is that you have to um, when we're talking about lower speeds and everything, you have to run ten laps consistently at at certain speeds. So I think you have to do that like for remember like one eighty to one ninety. You have to run ten laps of that consistently, not faster, not slower. It has to be in that range. Once you do that, then you jump up to the next speed, 190 to 200, 10 laps. Then once you clear that, then you have to do 200 to 210, 10 laps. And then after that, I think they just let you run 10 laps above 210. Now, that's 10 miles an hour. You think, oh, I could click that out. It's, you know, that's only a difference of maybe like a quarter of a second. So that's how consistent you have to be to hold that speed consistently, like run 181, 182, 181, 182. Even though you want to push the throttle and go faster, even though you know you can go faster in the turn because the car will do 230 miles an hour around the track. Oh, that's insane. So, yeah, so you're, you're holding back your, your adrenaline, you're holding back your, it's like, ah, I can want to go faster, but no, I got to just you know, keep myself calm. So that's what they're doing. So on rookie orientation day, we're doing all this, all those things to to get your approval to even be able to be, I guess, invited or to be able to enter for the race. So you have to pass that. And once you know, I I passed it and everything. And it was, I think, it was like the week before the five hundred or the month of May, because it's well back. It's different today 
but back then it's the whole month of May, you know, all four weeks. But now, right. now it still is, but they shorten Indy's time to two weeks because they throw a road race before it. So it is the whole month of May, but the first two weeks is a road race on, on the Grand Prix track in the infield. Then they have Indy right after that. But when I did it, when it was the whole month of May, they had regular rotation the week before, and then May, the first weekend of May, that's when they start all the practices. And now we're here with everybody and everything. And when I walked out to Gaston Valley, because it's a whole different animal. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's the attention that's around the whole event, you know, just the fans and everything. I mean, all the equipment on pit lane, and you're walking out there for your first time out there, you're just like, holy shit. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like me. I was like shocked. So you get all these distractions and everything, and then you're going around the track, and you're like, "Wow, I'm really doing this." <laughs> and I remember talking to like Alexander Junior. and Johnny Rutherford. Johnny Rutherford is like my hero. I mean, if there's if there's any driver that I idolize or will always know watch when I was little, it was Johnny Rutherford. And I remember talking to the two of them because they're they're around. I mean, I mean, those guys are are like legends and everything, but they're around all the IndyCar races and everything as like advice advice for drivers or anything, you know. They're they're there to help you, you know, to to feel comfortable and or give pointers or if you have questions about something. And so they were telling me, you know approach this corner this way and do this and do that. Or where I was watching you is like, no, you're, you're, you're entering really nice, but try to carry more speed through here. And they're giving me their techniques. And so as I was like, getting comfortable in the car, when I knew I was comfortable and relaxed. <laughs> so Indianapolis is, or the speedway is, I think it's on like the West side and everything. And the airport is on the south south side of or the south part of Indianapolis. Because the, the freeway system you know, is like a big circle around around Indianapolis, where the main highway is. So the south part is the airport, and the speedway is like on the west side, look halfway up, I guess. And the planes come over the speedway on approach at the airport. And going down the front straightaway, as I'm coming down out of turn four onto the front straightaway, I'm seeing like little specks up over here. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that? So the next lap I go around, I don't see it. And the next lap I go around, now I see like a little speck right here. And then I'm going like this, looking like that. I was like, oh, that's an airplane. <laughs> and then, so I'm thinking, I, I gotta be pretty comfortable right now because if I'm noticing like an airplane right here that's bothering me, this little speck in the sky, a little black dot, and then, you know, here I'm going 220 miles an hour down the straightaway and everything, you know, going into a turn that I'm noticing an airplane here. I was like, oh, I think I shouldn't be focused right here. What's what's going on? But, you know, you do get comfortable and relaxed and start noticing stuff like that, you know, believe it or not, or you see like, not really you can pick out a person, but you might see someone wearing like a bright yellow shirt or something where it's like, you see them every time you go by, you can notice these things. The, the airplane thing was a trip because 
so as I saw it and noticed it there, so as the time is going on and throughout the days at Amy, and it's getting faster and faster, we're qualifying like you know, over 200, 225, 227 at that time. That when you're coming down the straightaway, I noticed that not only the spec was there, but then I noticed the spec was like going like this, going behind me. And then I started realizing, like, well, wait a minute, a plane lands on approach at about 200 miles an hour. You know, I'm going down the stairway at 230 and everything. I'm going faster than the plane. Then that's when I was like, holy shit. Yeah. So that was that was just kind of like that, I mean that that's like one of my my first time story going there and everything that I noticed. And I always tell that to people. I mean that's when I, that's you know kind of putting it in perspective of how fast that you're going. And then like what you said, you know, being comfortable and relaxed and you have a breather. So in a sense, you do have a little breathing time, but like I mentioned earlier, a lap time is about 38 seconds around the track. You are in a you're in a corner about 55, I think mathematically 55 percent of the time you're in a turn. So it's almost like you know half that like. 18 seconds to whatever you're in a turn then release turn release turn release so you're pulling at you're pulling almost four g's in a turn i mean four times your body weight so if you just weigh 100 pounds i don't weigh more than that but you weigh 100 pounds that's four times your body weight and so for a 500 mile race that takes about three and a half hours long you're doing that just you know like i said you're in a turn every like 30 seconds of one lap so the physical fitness of that, you know, you have to sustain that for three and a half hours and be mentally focused because at those speeds, you cover a football field in, in one second. So, I mean, that's, is your, does your neck hurt afterwards? You know, with, with all the training, no. I mean, it's just, you know, little strain, little, little, little whatever, you know. Um, well, fatigue, but not like not hurt or because you're you're you got a horseshoe around your head or like a head not really like a headrest, but it's what's well, kind of like a, it is a headrest, but it's also for safety and everything in case you crash. Um, but your head's like it goes right up to your to your helmet, so it just sits right there and everything to where it supports um, the head from falling. Right. Um, didn't they put a didn't they put a device on the on the helmet? To it. so when a driver would would the, the wrong side of the car would hit the wall, it would keep them from moving that direction too far. They have a Hans device that they that they have the drivers wear. Um, it's a kind of like a horseshoe that goes around your around your neck and everything. You're right. And it just comes down like right right over your shoulders and down. And then your seatbelts overlap that. Then in the back, it has. Let's see if I have a helmet right here. No, I don't. But on, on the back, it, it goes up like like a like a cup like this. So your your helmet kind of sits right here, to the back of it. And then this mm-hmm. part is up against the the I guess the back of the car or the headrest right there. Right. So the Hans device is sits up against that, and then your helmet goes is curved with it. 
Right. It has two tethers that goes to the helmet on the sides and everything. And it only leaves, leaves your head to move forward, probably like, you know, just enough to go like that. So it doesn't go too far forward. So if you have like a frontal impact or in an angle or sideways, your head doesn't go smack the steering wheel or, or farther than, than it naturally should go. You also told me that you had, did you, did you ever crash a car at Indy? I, yeah, <laughs> I guess. I, I got a got a flat tire going in the shirt. Was it a flat tire? I don't remember if it was a flat tire going into turn one during a practice session. And um, turn one is always the, the tricky corner at the speedway because there's every turn is identical, is what they say. And everything, even like the unzers and everybody will say they're all the same. It's just a whole different look in every corner because of the stands and the bleachers. And turn one is the only turn that you're coming down the straightaway, you can see where it goes in but you can't see the exit of the corner. All the other turns, you can see the exit of the corner when you're approaching it. And the bleachers on the outside of the turn are like tall, really tall. I mean, there's like two two levels and then the suites above it, barely. But in between, there's a gap. And depending if it's a windy day, there's you know, like, a, like a wind tunnel going through there. So it has its own tricky moments in there. And, I'm not sure if I was caught out through like a like a gust of wind that blew through there, or if I got a flat tire, but I lost it. And usually most cars, if they're gonna crash, it's always in turn one. Um I wasn't up to speed at that time. I was like probably the earlier days of that month of May. And car just came around, the rear end just came around and slid sideways all the way down, just completely sideways all the way down through the, what they call a short shoot, which is just like a little straightaway between turn one and turn two. But I was kept sliding sideways all the way down and just sucked into the inside of the turn or the, or the track and everything, and I hit the inside wall. I was only going to 80 miles an hour when I hit it, so it wasn't going that fast. But I hit it, like, perfect <laughs> to where it pushed the nose of the cone inward so when you looked at we took the nose coming off you're looking inside of it and it was like reverse it was like sticking that way and there was <laughs> and it didn't even break the front wing off anything because the nose the very pointy part of the nose sticks out farther than, than the actual wings so i mean i i hit it squared on straight and everything and then uh it just pushed in the nose like six inches and it was just like it, yeah i mean like i said it wasn't wasn't um I don't think you're hitting you more square than that. That's pretty cool, man. That's pretty cool. Hey, Corey, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with us again. I liked getting more about your career in ATVs. We always seem to get off topic sometimes, but some of the things that you tell us and, and talk to us about your career are so intriguing. It's it's hard not to uh, to get caught up in those conversations and those stories. Um, most people don't get the inside scoop on what it's like to be in a race car driver, let alone a guy that's raced Indy cars. So I, I really appreciate you telling us about those things and uh, letting us in on the secrets behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's an awesome, it was an awesome opportunity. It was an awesome, awesome deal and everything to, 
like I said, I started off in quads and everything, and and to do everything that I've done in between that and and IndyCar, everything in the middle. I mean, it, it's it's great, you know. Quads is where I started, and you know, I like I talked to Brian Fry and told him when we met up like a couple of years ago. Um, I went to his house and watched Supercross, and I I told him like, dude, you kind of set my foundation. <laughs> You know, you kind of said you sent me or got me pointed in the right direction because my family's not, you know, a racing family. You know, they rode dirt bikes, you know, when they're younger and with my older brothers and sisters before I came around. But but as far as any knowledge of racing, they had no knowledge of that. And so Brian kind of taught me a lot of that and they took me around and what he taught me kind of extended through all the different cars and off-road cars and and open wheel cars and IndyCar and stock cars and stuff. I approached every new 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 um adventure doing the same mental mindset and everything. So that's, I, that's I, told, so I, cool. I I credit like what I've been able to do is because of you you kind of set me what what to look for and, and how to approach it. So I mean he helped me a lot, and like I said, we're 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 still good friends and everything. And we talked to each other a lot during the last last you know couple of years and everything. So that's pretty cool stuff. But the um, one thing, so so actually, I forgot to say one thing. But the one thing, like like you're talking about the mental and physical training thing. My one my one training thing for for uh for mental training is playing golf. Because golf is one game. It doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are. One golf is or one playing golf is like the most mental game you could probably play. And the most challenging game to try not to get frustrated because you never like your swing, you never like your hit or where it's gonna land. But it's overcoming that and everything and still try to par the hole. So you might have a bad tee shot and slice it and everything, and people get you need to watch all the golfers, they get mad. But it's over controlling that anger and frustration where you now have to focus on, okay, now what I'm going to do to get that hole back on the fairway or on the green and everything and still try to par or better your score from the last time. So it, so my mental training, I played golf like two, three times a week when I was racing there. And just one, to get away from racing and clear my head because it's it kind of a stress reliever. But at the same time, it was my mental training part and everything to try to stay focused you know for like four hours and playing around the golf how i relaxed my relaxation was sitting on an airplane <laughs> when i was racing <laughs> when, you're, when you're racing the car, i mean like i always tell people one third of my time was racing one third of my time was maybe at home and one third of my time was in a plane flying someplace but the only time where I was able to decompress and be stress-free from everything was sitting on the plane. Yeah, no phone. You can't do nothing. That's just, no you're just that's it. And the best thing wasn't because I flew so much. I was an American Airlines executive platinum member. So I got upgraded for every flight. <laughs> so oh, I just nice. took first class and fly everywhere. You know, paying coach fare, and then I got upgraded, you know, like I said, because I was on their top tier of their, of their program. So... Getting out here was no problem. 
So I just sit there and I got to know all the flight attendants. So they see me walking down the jet bridge. They already have my glass of wine right there and <laughs> waiting for me. <laughs> and asking is like, do we race or do you come back from uh, testing or promotions? So I'm like, racing. <laughs> so that's so cool. That that is pretty cool that they that they knew who you were and and uh, knew what you did and that's awesome. All the, to this day, all my friends love traveling with me when we go go places. Because they like, you know, all the ins and outs of every airport. But it's like, I spend many hours in every airport in the country. <laughs> and know the hotels and know, and know how, the air, how the airlines work and everything. Well, yeah, as much traveling as you did, you, you would. Yeah. My, my, my only tip to people is this. You got to be nice. You got to be nice to the, the, ticket, the people at the ticket encounter. Regardless how frustrated you are. Because... The guy before you piss them off, and if you're nice to them, they're going to help you out. <laughs> right. That's how you get upgraded. <laughs> look, look, yeah, just be nice. Look for the angry guy at the ticket encounter and get in that line next and be really nice. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then they'll upgrade you. Yeah. Then they'll, then they'll be nice because now you're cool. And then they're like, ah, okay, find something nice. <laughs> That's awesome stuff. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International, Inc. offers host, MC, and guest speaking services at events builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world. And they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to duncantechinternational at gmail.com or call 619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms, and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 